Good morning again. Will you please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word? This morning, the scripture comes from Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Job, great job. You guys may be seated. Thank you, Thaddeus, for the word. How's everyone doing this morning? Good, good. Nobody uh, stayed up extra late because of the thunderstorms? Uh, Who here sleeps through the thunderstorms? Raise your hands. Who here has sleepless nights with the thunderstorms? All right, a few of us. It's like this, like, loud, natural sound machine. My my son has, like, two sound machines. One is playing these wave sounds, so it was, like, so confusing as I heard the waves through the baby monitor, but the thunderstorms outside, it was like I was in a movie or something. Uh, I slept okay. Thanks for asking. Uh, We're going to jump into our time of worship in the Word. Thank you, Thaddeus, for reading Galatians. This morning, we are in our fifth week through the book of Galatians, and what we've been doing is sort of taking this slow journey examining some key themes that Paul has to say about the Christian life uh, that are so foundational uh, to the life of of a disciple. Uh, Themes like freedom and and, uh, themes like what does it mean to be justified, to be made right with God. And and this morning we are approaching a a very monumental subject, one that uh, some have argued is one of the most important subjects in the Bible, and that's the subject of adoption. Uh, And to unpack uh, this text that we're going to navigate, we're going to visit three scenes. So if you're taking notes, scene one is creation, scene two is enslavement, and scene three is adoption. Creation, enslavement, and adoption. Let's pray. Father, we come in Jesus' name and, and we thank you for the rain. Uh, We thank you for uh, the promise that you will never flood the earth again. We thank you for the rain that symbolizes your provision and your blessing. I pray that as the rain falls on the land and produces an abundant harvest, I pray that the Spirit, your Spirit, would fall on us this morning and that dry ground would become fertile and that new life would spring forth as we look into this word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Scene one, creation. Genesis chapter one, verse one, that's a familiar place uh, in this church, and we're going to revisit it all over again and see how it speaks to the text this morning. So you know the joke, page one of your Bible. If you have extra large print, page two, uh, let's all open there together. If you don't have a Bible or if you need a Bible, I want to invite you to shoot up your hand really quick, and and we can put one in your hand. If my man uh, Justin can help or or Derek put a Bible in people's hand, uh, we have one in the middle. And I want to invite you to look at the scripture 
uh, with me. And if, if you don't own a Bible, you can take that one home with you. It is yours to keep. Thank you, Justin. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And what I want to do in this one verse is focus on one word, which might be the most important word, and that's God. Now, when we read these scriptures, we're reading them in English, and sometimes we lose some of the significance in the original language. And here's what I mean. If you were to read this text in Hebrew, the name, the word for God that would appear is this word, Elohim. Can you say that with me? Elohim. Come on, let's go. And this is a Hebrew title uh, that means a variety of things, but in this context, it means that God is the almighty king of the universe, that God is powerful and that he is the creator and he is the authority over every living thing and he stands above his creation because he created it. And in this Genesis narrative, anytime we see the word for God used, it's Elohim, which is in that place to emphasize his power, his authority, his greatness. In fact, uh, in the Old Testament, when Elohim is used as God's name, it's in reference to his glory, to his majesty, to his creative power. Uh, This is what the psalmist says in Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of Elohim, and the sky proclaims his handiwork. Once again, Elohim means God is the almighty king of the universe. He stands above creation, and creation declares the glory of Elohim. This is the name that Genesis 1 uses for God to describe God as he's creating. And you know the story, God created the heavens and the earth. God created every living thing, every swarming creature. God created. But in Genesis chapter 2, we see a different name in place. In Genesis chapter 2, we see the author describing the creation of man and woman using an entirely different name. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 through 9. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Did you catch it? In Genesis 1, it says over and over again, God, just that title alone, God created Elohim. On this day, God created the heavens and the earth. Elohim creates. But in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it says, the Lord God. It's using a different title, but it's referring to the same God. And this is a little technical, but it's incredibly significant. What does it mean? Whenever you see the word Lord, all caps, in your Bible... Uh, In the Old Testament, it means that the Hebrew word being used there is Yahweh. And when we put this together, Lord God means Yahweh Elohim. Now, why is this significant? The reason this is significant is because anytime the word Yahweh is used in the Old Testament, it's used to describe the personal and intimate nature of God. 
Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, the personal God. Genesis 1, Elohim, the almighty God, the creator of the universe, this powerful force that stands above all of creation. Genesis 2, Yahweh Elohim, the God who stoops down into his creation, kneels, grabs some dust, forms man, and breathes life into him, the personal God. Now, the author of Genesis we attribute to Moses, and Moses knew a thing or two about being personally and intimately connected to God. The name Yahweh is, in fact, the self-revealed name that God gives to Moses when he encounters Moses. And Moses says, who should I say is sending me? Who are you? And God says, I am, which translates to Yahweh in the Hebrew scriptures. Let's look at Exodus 3, 4 through 6. It says this, when the Lord, you see that? All caps, Yahweh Elohim, saw that he turned aside to see. God called them out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near to me. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God, Elohim, the almighty, powerful creator of the universe. Then the Lord, Yahweh, said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. Remember, anytime we see the word Yahweh used, it's used to describe the personal and intimate nature of God. This is how personal God is. He knows their sufferings. And he is so personal that he says, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Later down, it says in 315, God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and I am to be remembered throughout all generations. To drive this point home, this is what Walter Kaiser says. In the name, in the name, when the name Yahweh is, in the name, when the name Yahweh is used in the Bible, it wishes to present the personal character of God. And, and his direct relationship with those human beings who have a special association with him. On the contrary, Elohim occurs when the scriptures are referring to God as a transcendent being who is the author of the material world, yet one who stands above it. Elohim conveys the more philosophically oriented concept that connects deity with the existence of, with the, existence of the world and humanity. But for those who seek more direct, personal, and ethically oriented view of God, the term Yahweh is used. Yahweh Elohim, the personal God. Yahweh Elohim, the God who sees his people, the God who knows them and is committed to love them and save them. Where Elohim refers to the almighty creator who stands above creation. Yahweh Elohim stresses, hear me church, and highlights how personal the almighty creator is with his people. Now, why does this name matter? And why did I just spend a little bit of time emphasizing these two different titles? Let's look at Genesis 3, 1 through 8, as we come up on our second scene, Enslaved. 
Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 8, you know the story? Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. This is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Genesis chapter 3, known as the fall. The fall from what? The fall from grace. The fall from our perfect, good, unhindered relationship with God. Where Adam and Eve fell into the great temptation. And in a moment of broken trust, they disobey God. And their act of obedience introduces sin into the picture. And now sin severs this perfect relationship they once had with God. And now instead of being ruled by God and reigning with him, they're ruled and reigned by sin. How did they get there? How did this happen? Notice again how how the serpent describes God. Once again, it's technical, but it's very significant. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, all you have to do is flip back a couple pages to find out that God actually did say don't eat of that tree. But what the enemy is doing here is that he's bending and twisting the facts. And notice the title that he's using for God. It's simply God. Elohim. Uh, What he is doing, remember, Elohim describes his power and might. It's a revered title, but it's not a personal one. And what the enemy does in one moment is that he depersonalizes God and makes him seem like this almighty, powerful creator, but he's distant. And when the serpent refers to God and he calls him Elohim, he drops the personal name. He keeps the title, but the personal name of God, Yahweh, is gone. I've heard it said this way, in a personal relationship, you never refer to that person by their title. If you're a mother or a father or a spouse, uh, is a teacher, a doctor, mechanic, social worker, baker, you don't connect to them according to their title. You, you connect according to their name. You, you don't call them teacher, parent, doctor. You call them mom, dad, babe, spouse, whatever endearing term you use. And what the serpent does here in this moment is that he depersonalizes God to make him seem distant. Yes, a God that's almighty, a God that created you, who stands above creation, but not the God who walks and talks to his creation. And the serpent in this discourse creates a relational rupture by making God seem distant and impersonal. He's mighty, he's powerful, yes, but intimate and close? Well, where is he? So he takes the attention off of Yahweh Elohim, the personal God, and attempts to portray God as powerful, yes, but stingy and restrictive. 
So the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took its fruit and ate, gave some to her husband who, were with, who was with her and ate. Then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths out of shame. And hear this, they heard the sound of the Lord God. They heard the sound of Yahweh God, the God who walks in the garden with them, the God who talks to them, the God who is personal, not the God who is distant. They sin. And what's so significant about this moment, church, is that this is, was never about breaking God's rules. It's about a broken relationship and the effects that this broken relationship has in every area and aspect of our lives. It's about a way of life that was lost at the beginning. And it's about a a way of life uh, that that we live in now, disconnected, disillusioned, broken. Yes, God is the almighty creator, but if we're honest with ourselves, he seems a little distant. He's revered, but it doesn't seem intimate. And, And once in the beginning, we were intimately connected to God, created for God to be in relationship with him. And now we function as orphans. And we feel the effects of fatherlessness and enslavement everywhere. Uh, We're enslaved by the forces of sin that we claim we can set ourselves free from, yet we're still in bondage. And in sin, we've removed ourselves from the love and protection of the Father. And now we go look for love and protection and significance in a thousand different places and spaces. We reach for significance. We reach for purpose in what? In pleasure, let me do whatever I can that makes me feel good so I can numb away the pain. And if it's not pleasure, we go after money. Why? Because money can resource the lifestyle that I think will give me all of the significance and all of the joy. And if it's not that, we go after power. Because I have to be on, on top and in control because everything around me seems out of control and nothing else is working for me. So it's up to me. Once intimately connected with a God who created us for personal relationship. Now it seems like the story of our life is functioning as orphans. We know God is powerful, but it seems like he is to be revered rather than enjoyed. And if you feel this way, if you feel dry this morning, if you feel distant, if you feel disconnected, if you feel disillusioned with God, if you doubt God's love for you and his presence in your life, if you question he's a good father, hear me, Galatians chapter four was written for you. Scene three, adoption. Chapter four, verse three, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. The scene that Paul is describing is that apart from God fathering us and lording over us as Lord and Savior, we're enslaved by the forces and systems of this world. And you can tell yourself all day, I'm I'm not enslaved, I'm, I'm more free than you are. But what does your social media habits, your internet habits, your bank account reveal about who rules and reigns in your life? And how is your pursuit of freedom making you more free without Jesus? And if you take an honest, hard look, you'll find yourself that, yes, you may be experiencing temporary pleasure and temporary satisfaction, but it's fleeting. 
and it's not life giving. And that's because the mechanism of sin at work in us doesn't uh, set us more free as we feed it. It enslaves us even more. But sin is so crafty that it makes it seem like we have this light in our life, but it's dim. And it's not leading us to greater freedom. It's just leading us to greater darkness. But here's the good news of the kingdom of God. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit into his sons, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. I want to focus on that title, Father. Because when we think about the title, Father, depending on your upbringing, this title is either one that is adorned with affection, or on the other hand, a title that's easily dismissible. And the story of ancient Israel relating to God is one out of reverence without intimacy. There were a handful of people like Moses who got intimacy, but for the most part, everybody else's connection was through the law. So they knew how to revere God, but was God knowable? Not so much. And this idea of ascribing the title Father to God was so scandalous because it was thought that the reverence was lost. And here's what's so amazing. When Jesus comes onto the scene, he introduces a radical and scandalous way of connecting to God. He starts calling God Father. And when he teaches his disciples to pray, he begins by saying, pray then like this, our Father. Now, this seems basic and ordinary and dismissible to us, but if you were a first century, well-practicing Jewish scribe or Pharisee, you would have been outraged by Jesus' statement because you would have heard a man belittling God. You would have heard a man uh, belittling God and removing the sacredness of the Almighty God by ascribing to him such a casual and ordinary name. The reverence for God was held in such high esteem that when they would write the word Yahweh, they would remove the vowels to, to, to keep the word, the title of God, sacred and honorable. But Jesus says, pray like this, our Father. And what he is doing when he begins to instruct us to relate to God as father is that he begins to close the distance that sin created between children and the father. Matthew 121 says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save people from their sins. Call his name Jesus. What does Jesus mean in Hebrew? Yahweh saves. Yahweh, the personal God. Yes, the almighty God who created everything, but the personal God who enters into creation among his people is here to save. God in the flesh, Yahweh Elohim, is inviting his children to experience the intimacy that they always longed for but was out of reach because of the barrier of sin. And the good news of the kingdom of God is that Jesus has died to remove that barrier and we can experience relationship with God the way he intended for us in the beginning. And it gets better because it always does. Paul takes it a step further and says, Abba, Father. Paul in this moment is using a Jewish phrase uh, in a letter to Greek-speaking people to uh, highlight how intimate and endearing this term is. 
Abba, Father would have been this endearing term that would have been used for fathers the way that we use mommy or daddy or papi or baba or uh, whatever you call your, your father. And where does Paul get this? He gets this endearing term for father from Jesus because that's the term Jesus used when talking to the father, Mark 14, 36. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. This was incredibly scandalous and unheard of. Why? Because Jesus is using an everyday, ordinary, and familiar term to address the one true God, the Lord Almighty. So when Paul says that the Spirit of God causes us to cry, Abba, Father, what he is saying is that we have legally inherited the rights of Jesus himself. In other words, we can approach God the way Jesus approached God, as a son, as a daughter, Abba, Father, Papi, Daddy, you are God, my Father. We can approach God as if we were as faithful and steadfast as Jesus himself. All of that is ours. And how is this possible? Through adoption. Adoption is the process by which God creates one new family. Now, the word for adoption here in the Greek is referencing to a very specific system of adoption. It would be the Roman practice of adoption. In the Old Testament, you find no laws regarding adoption. But what Paul is using here is an everyday example uh, to connect to this incredible significance of, of, of this idea. Paul uses the word adoption, and their mind immediately goes to the Roman practice. And, and here's how it worked. Under Roman law, an adopted child acquired all of the legal rights of a natural-born child and was released from the control of his natural father, much like today. So when God adopts us, we acquire all of the legal rights of Jesus, And we're released from enslavement and we become sons and daughters. And here's what Paul has to say about this. Just in case you're wondering, am I a son? Am I a daughter? He loves me today. He loves me not. Uh, I don't know. I had a really good week, but last week was really bad. Where do I stand with God? Here's what he has to say in Galatians 3.26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Other translations say, for in Christ Jesus, you are already sons. This is not something we are becoming. This is something we are when we enter into faith with Jesus. So if you placed your faith in Jesus, if you're in a relationship with God, if you eagerly desire to exalt Christ in your life, you are a son and daughter, and you are not becoming more of a son. You are not becoming more of a daughter based off your performance. You're already in the family. Now, here's what Keller, Tim Keller, has to say about this word, sons. Now, many take offense at using the masculine word sons to refer to all Christians, male and female. Uh, Some would prefer to translate verse 26, you are all children of God. But if we are too quick to correct the biblical language, we miss the revolutionary nature of what Paul is saying. In most ancient cultures, daughters could not inherit property. Therefore, son meant legal heir which was a status forbidden to women. 
But the gospel tells us that we are all sons of God in Christ, male and female. We are all heirs. Similarly, the Bible describes all Christians together, including men, as the bride of Christ. God is even-handed in his gender-specific metaphors. Men are a part of his son's bride, and women are his sons, his heirs. If we don't let Paul call Christian women sons of God, we miss how radical and wonderful a claim this is. That when you come into faith in Jesus, men and women, you become an heir. You get to inherit all of God's glory and goodness. You inherit a relationship and all of his spiritual blessings. One that was only reserved for men at the time. The table is wide open to men and women. Now the question becomes, the question I have for us is, well, what does this sonship look like? And what does it mean to be a son of God? Remember, that, that, that includes male and female. First, it means that we're united with Christ. Uh, Paul is, um, one author says that, that, that Paul is probably thinking that since Christ is the Son of God. Being united with him and putting him on is what sonship is all about. Being united with Christ and putting on Jesus is what sonship is about. The second idea of what it means to be united with Christ is that we're clothed with Christ. This is significant. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Other translations say you're clothed with Christ. Now remember what happened in the beginning. Adam and Eve sinned against God and they immediately began to make themselves loincloths and and cloths to cover them. Now, when we come into Christ, we remove the coverings that we try uh, to uh, show the world that that we're not uh, filled with shame or with sin, that we try to justify ourselves with, that we try to cover ourselves with. Now those garments are removed and we're clothed with Christ. This idea put on is the idea of putting on clothes. Um, And what's so amazing is that this carries three significant realities that I want us all to be made aware of. The first one is that our primary identity is in Christ. Clothing, in some ways, is like a uniform that tells people who we are. And when we put on Christ, it reflects our primary identity and our allegiance to Jesus. The second thing that putting on means is the nearness of our relationship to Christ. Think about it. Clothing goes everywhere with you. You're not going to go to Chewy's and start taking those bad boys off and be like more jalapeno queso ranch. It's on you. It's close. It's connected to you. What does that mean? Everywhere I go, Christ goes with me. And this is the moment by moment practice of his presence with Yahweh God. He is on me. He is in me. Behold, I will be with you always. The third thing that clothed with Christ means is God's approval and delight over us. We mentioned earlier, since the fall, God has been clothing his people to cover their nakedness and shame. Genesis 3.21, and Yahweh Elohim made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. These clothes were temporary, however, and did not have the power to remove sin and shame. They only covered sin and shame. And when you come into Christ, sin and shame is not just covered so that you can present yourself to the world as righteous and holy. It is covered completely removed. 
When we say, church, that we are clothed in Christ, when we put on Christ, what this means is that according to the scriptures, in God's sight, we are loved and approved and accepted. Because when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. When God looks at you, when God sees you, he sees you as a son. He sees you as a daughter. Why? Because he sees his son escorting his bride. That is you and I into God's presence. This idea of being clothed with Christ carries this powerful imagery of wedding garments specifically a wedding dress. Uh, now, I don't care who you are. As, uh, as the old joke goes, anyone looks good in, in a wedding dress, even Dennis Rodman, who, who wore a wedding dress in a sports illustrated cover, I believe. There's something powerful and beautiful about the wedding dress and this image of the bride. Um, a show that, that I'm not endorsing but has a funny scene about this is How I Met Your Mother. And uh, in this one specific episode, one of the, the friends is getting married, their, their closest friends. And, and this tight-knit group of friends learn something so powerful at this wedding reception uh, that begins to sort of shift and direct the way they conduct themselves during the wedding. They learn that if you say it's for the bride, you can get anything or whatever you want. And so one of the friends is at the bar and he says, I need a glass of wine and some smoked almonds. And the guy says, the bar is closed. Uh, it's for the bride. I'm on it. Uh, and so he begins to rush out and go find almonds and this preferred drink of choice. And, and he gives it to them. And then there's a, another scene where they're trying to sit at this table, but it's, it, it's booked up. And so they say, hey, it's for the bride. And everybody moves and they get this table that they want. Or there's this fashion fiasco. Uh, one of the guys accidentally shaves his head. So they're looking for a wig and guess what? There's a guy there wearing a wig and the guy refuses to give them the wig. But another friend steps in and says, it's for the bride. And he immediately takes it off and and gives it to them. It's for the bride. Now, as silly as this is, uh, we know this to be true. I mean, you'll do anything on the wedding day for the bride. On my wedding day, I had friends running random errands all over town because it was that idea. It's for the bride. Now, how much more powerful is it when Jesus dies on the cross and says, it's for my bride? My righteousness, it's for my bride. My power, It's for my bride. My victory, it's for my bride. My love, it's for my bride. My security and worth and acceptance and significance, it's for my bride. My freedom, it's for my bride. My life, it's for my bride. Church, has the Father clothed you in this? Is this what you are wearing? Is this the God you are near to? Is this your father, Yahweh Elohim? Paul would go on to say in 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 47, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, who is Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. 
But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is a man from heaven. And was the man, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we also shall bear the image of the man of heaven. When you come into faith in Jesus, his life becomes your life and you become his bride and this savior will do anything for his bride Paul goes on to say thus it is written the first man became a life a living being and the last Adam became a life giving spirit Yahweh Elohim lived and walked among us laid his life down so that we could be raised to new life and experience this great miracle of adoptions this is the good news of the kingdom of god the enslaved become empowered sons the orphaned our father and the naked and ashamed are clothed with christ what is god inviting you to believe this morning Let's pray and reflect on this as we get ready to transition.